Hey, welcome to the Chess Experience. On this show, it's all about helping adult improvers. I want to make learning chess easier for you to navigate, and I also want you to have a more fun experience along the way. I'm your host, Daniel Lona, a fellow chess amateur. Let's get to it. This show is sponsored by Chess.com, the world's largest chess community. One of Chess.com's most popular features is called Game Review. This feature weaves together a lot of benefits in one post-game analysis. For example, you can see how accurately you played, whether you made any moves that were deemed brilliant or great, which makes me feel a lot better about my chess when I get one of those. And Game Review also offers a virtual coach that gives insights on every move. It'll also show you alternate lines that would have been better for you to help you understand how you can improve your game. So go on chess.com, play a game, and try out the game review. Welcome to today's episode. I am super excited for today's guest, international master, Kostya Kavutsky. If you follow chess improvement content, and I'm guessing you do since you listen to this show, then there's a good chance you know Kostya. He created Chess Dojo along with Grandmaster Jesse Cry and international master David Pruis. The Chess Dojo helps you improve your chess with amazing lessons and content on their Twitch and YouTube channels, so I would definitely check that out if you have not yet. And that content is also released on their podcast of the same name. As for Kostya, he's had an awesome journey becoming an international master, and he has since co-authored the chess book Modernized to the Open Sicilian, and he created the Chessable course Endgame Studies 101. But in this episode, Kostya helps us understand why we should study annotated game books and what are some of the best practices in using them to improve our chess. Many of you have asked me to cover this topic, and so today we finally do. And with an amazing guest to help us, if I may say so, there's lots of enlightening insights that you'll get. And in the last third of the interview, Kostya and I talk about Chess Dojo's newest release called Training Programs. And I highly recommend listening to that because there are some great improver tips there, even if you don't end up signing for that program, although listening to that part of the podcast and signing up for the program is probably best, but that part of the interview is still incredibly helpful. Here's our chat. Hope you enjoy it. Hi, Kostya. How are you today? Hey, doing good, Daniel. Thanks for uh, having me on. Yeah, absolutely. I'm very excited to have you on. Uh, like I said to you earlier, uh, before we did this interview, I've been a fan of the Chess Dojo and your work individually as well for over a year now. So uh, really excited to have you on the podcast. You're definitely someone who I had hoped one day would appear uh, once I, you know, when I first uh, decided to create this show. So I'm very excited to have you. Kostya, you've, you've had a very long chess life all the way up through your international master title and then everything you've been doing since then as well. So uh, no doubt there's a lot of uh, journey and story we could talk about, you know, even before you began the chess dojo and things like that. But just in this episode for now, just like to focus on, you know, the chess dojo and what you're up to personally in chess to uh, kick off this interview. So can you tell us just briefly what the chess dojo is? Yeah, absolutely. So um, Chess Dojo is basically a, a group of coaches. It's consisted of myself, uh, International Master David Pruis, and uh, Grandmaster Jesse Cry. And it's basically uh, like an online chess club, or, you know, we try to model it like a real dojo. You know, we, you have us coaches, aka senseis at the top, 
and um, we do a lot of streaming. We do a lot of YouTube videos. Um, right now, we've been working on our, our big new uh, training program. And um, we're basically, I mean, our goal is to just try to help as many people as possible become better at chess. So we try to be super instructional and educational. We definitely keep it, you know, fun for anyone that's that's watched some of the, some of the streams, especially uh, Jesse's streams. But the goal is to just get as many people as good as chess as uh, as we possibly can. Um, I would say the the heart of Chess Dojo is actually not on on Twitch or YouTube. It's actually the Discord server. That's where it mm. kind of originally started because I felt like Discord was actually uh, just a very very cool app that was kind of being underutilized in the chess world. Um, Because at the time, I think I, um, you know, started the Discord, like, I think it was December uh, 2019, around there, maybe November. And at the time, it was basically like, you know, if you were someone who wanted to uh, find a training partner or like discuss chess improvement with someone else, you you basically could either go to, you know, reddit.com or (laughs) you had like the chess punks community uh, on Twitter that had been around for a little while. Uh, then but there was no like centralized place I felt for people that actually like just want to like get better at chess and like discuss it with others if that makes sense yeah absolutely and so I'm guessing that's why you feel the discord is still the discord server is still the heart of the chess dojo for you because because of that interaction what you I mean as great as and as much value as twitch streams and and youtube videos can offer uh you feel that that interaction with others like you said just sort of that community and the, the training partner aspect is what makes the discord special and, and different from those other mediums yeah absolutely that's what i felt it was it was always about just giving people a place um where they could find uh serious uh training partners because i mean for me personally i feel like the time that i improved the most was when i uh had actually like a regular training partner that I would work with. Like when I was around like maybe 22, 2300 FIDE, um, I was working with uh, international master Johnny Bekamanov. We ended up, you know, writing a book together. Um, and there was a period of time there where we would basically train like almost every day. And uh, we went through like some books together. We um, we went through this uh, well-known book, Perfect Your Chess, that's very well regarded for, for strong players, like trying to work on their calculation and yeah, I just felt like my chess improved tremendously. Also because he was, you know, a significantly stronger player than me. He was already an IM. I was like maybe 2,300 or so. He definitely taught me a lot and really helped me in terms of like, you know, showing how to, you know, calculate deeper and faster and, and all that stuff. And then, uh, yeah, there's another time where I actually lived with a chess player, uh, national master uh, Tom Riccardi. Basically, we, we lived together for several months, and we would just train every single day. You know, solve studies together, look at look at games, look at openings. You know, play training games. That was very very influential. And that was during the time when I was trying to get um, my uh, uh, final IM norms. Okay, that's really interesting because for all that I've explored in adult improvement and trying to get better at chess. And it certainly hasn't been comprehensive, but it's been a lot for me over the past year. And now, especially with this podcast, I'm diving even deeper into this subject. I haven't heard a lot of people talk about the importance of a training partner. And so I think I think that's fascinating. Do you feel that my perception is accurate? Like that isn't a subject that's talked about a lot for improvement? Yeah, I, I would say it, it is kind of... Um... 
neglected. It's like one of those things that, you know, I think it's obvious when people hear it, but there's no, it's, it's not always that convincing, you know, <laughs> people just hear it like, yeah, that makes sense. And then they just continue to do their own thing. Um, the funny thing though, is that like both David and Jesse, I think they also independently um, came to this conclusion. They used to live in um, the so-called GM house up in the Bay area. Hmm. Um, with, with lots of other strong players that would kind of go in and out. And so they would literally, you know, um, live with like two, three other like IMs or GMs and, uh, and analyze chess every day. You know, I, I can only imagine how good that was for everyone, uh, living there in terms of their, their own improvement. Yeah, for sure. I'm kind of envious of that, especially at the GM level. So, uh, regarding the chess dojo, who would you say is your main audience or, do you have a specific audience that you're trying to help or is it just anyone who wants to get better at chess? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's open to everyone. And um, I think generally it's, it's the adult improvers that are kind of attracted to our uh, like philosophies and, and our ideas. Um, but we have like a number of kids in, in the, you know, in the club as well. Hmm. Um, some, some prodigies that we're very, we're very hopeful about. <laughs> um, but uh you know, in general, it's people who kind of like, you know, talking about chess and discussing chess and, um, you know, people are always kind of debating the, the best ways, you know, to improve and stuff, which I don't think is actually like such a great use of time, but it, it generally attracts that kind of crap. <laughs> yeah, I agree about that. Not always being the best use of time. How was the chess dojo formed? Uh, what was its origins? So, yeah, basically... Um, like I mentioned, originally it just started as like a, a Discord server, and um, uh, I had just started uh, streaming like some random like group classes uh, once a week with with people that were in the in the server. Was that just you, or was it was it with you and Jesse and David already right away? Um, this was actually just just me. You know, I just like the name Chess Dojo, um, but I was always hoping that people would kind of join in because I, I guess I didn't want it to be like my channel or like my discord server, if that makes sense. I just wanted it to be more of like a public place where people can just go if they're interested in chess improvement, they don't have to be like a fan of me or, or whatever. Um, so I always wanted to kind of get like more uh, coaches involved. But the whole idea actually was from David, he emailed me, I think just a couple months in, I don't think he even knew about chess dojo at that time. But he was just he saw that I'd been streaming and um, he had been streaming for a little while. And he felt like it would be good to team up because um, streaming these days or even, you know, back then this was actually technically this was before the Queen's Gambit, which <laughs> kind of like exploded everything. Um, right. But even back then it was already very, very competitive in terms of streaming. And so um, we both felt like we'd have a better chance uh, of teaming up and we can cover more hours together. And um, we wanted a third person. And I think Jesse's name came up very, very quickly um, we might have had some other people that I think maybe just were busy at the time or, I don't know, weren't that interested. But but Jesse seemed to be on board because um, he was actually doing his own little streaming. He was doing his road back to 2500 on his mm. channel, um, which uh, for people that haven't seen, uh, I'm sure we have the episodes up on, on YouTube. Um, and that was actually a really interesting series. I remember watching it and um, really, really enjoying it. And that was just basically Jesse coming on for an hour every week and just kind of discussing what he's been doing um, lately with his chess improvement, you know, going over his games, working on his calculation or, or, you know, whatever he was doing. Yeah. Basically we got him involved and um, 
I don't think Chess Dojo was really on the table at that point, but I just kind of mentioned, you know, guys, like I already have like this channel and like I already made the Discord. So like we can just go with this if you, if you guys are interested. Okay. I, you know, if they wanted to do something else, I would have probably abandoned it. You know, we would have started a new channel would have been called something else. But because I already had kind of like, you know, a little bit of a, of a brand going, we felt like it was just easiest. And um, yeah, I don't think anyone wanted to make like a new Twitch channel and YouTube channel, like all this <laughs> stuff. So, but okay. But since then, I mean, I would say the dojo has taking on a completely um, new personality, right? So without, without the two of them, and we have a third guy, uh, DM Hokey, who's kind of like our tech guy. And he's the one that's pretty much, um, you know, done all of like the behind the scenes stuff that is just as important. You know, now I, I feel like the dojo has, it's like completely like, new personality and it's gone way beyond anything I ever thought it would, uh, back then. Yeah. So all this sort of began, uh, in 2019, right? Uh, honestly, it was right as the uh, pandemic hit, it was like March, 2020 that we were already talking about it. And, uh, we were actually planning on starting like in, in June of that year. And then when everyone got sent home, we were like, well, maybe now's a good time to actually start streaming and, and start working on it. That's amazing. By the time I discovered you, and I can't pinpoint exactly which month it was in 2020, but maybe around mid-2020, it already just felt and seemed like a really established, well-honed brand and entity that knew what it was about and knew what it was doing. So I just impressed at how quickly you, you got to this place where, you know, and, and obviously a large audience too. Um, that's, I mean, that's rare, right? I mean, it seems rare to attract that large of an audience and have that seemingly clear of a mission uh, just several months into its launch. I appreciate that. I mean, I always compare us to, you know, some of the bigger Twitch channels, and I feel like we're still just like a, a tiny little fish. <laughs> but, um, but but yeah, I'm, I'm glad it came across that way. I mean, we definitely spent a lot of time, you know, privately and, and I guess on the podcast as well, just kind of like uh, Dojo Talks, just kind of discussing, you know, our philosophies when it comes to like coaching and, um, you know, getting better and all that stuff. And we, we, we definitely... Uh, disagree on a lot of stuff as, as people <laughs> as people love to see, um, but I feel like fundamentally we're uh, I think we agree on the important stuff. That's awesome. One question I had for you just about the chess dojo, and later after we talk about annotated game books, we'll come back to your training programs for sure. So people should definitely stay to the end to hear about that because it's an exciting new project that you have. Is and you kind of alluded to this a little bit the idea of instruction versus entertainment within chess. And um, one of the reasons I love the chess dojo is just how focused you are on the instruction side of it, because that's that's where my heart is within chess mostly. And, uh, you know, I obviously see value uh, and appreciate the entertainment side that chess can bring too. And that's been, I think, uh, a big part of the chess industry within the past couple of years. But I'm just kind of curious how you balance the two, because you do seem focused on the instruction, but you also seem to provide, try to provide some entertainment. How do you strike that balance? What's your vision for the two together with the Chess Dojo? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think, you know, I'm I'm definitely, let's say, more passionate about the uh, educational side, um, because, you know, I actually feel like I really had to learn a lot just kind of on my own, just through studying books and um, it was a very tough process, but I felt like it was a very rewarding process. And, and I, I love kind of sharing, um, you know, details and advice with people uh, about how to, you know, how to really work on the game and improve. But of course, it's like, you know, it's Twitch and uh, Twitch has a lot of, you know, 
cool toys right, with like donations and bits and there's all these like different widgets and games so yeah it's kind of like fun to to take advantage of that stuff and um, um also you know we have a, a creative side um like both me and david actually we had been wanting to do a, a chess reality show for a number of years i think for david it's been something like 10 years <laughs> you know he's been wanting to do like a reality style show and um, we got a chance to do it with um, with Ultimate Sensei, which we did two seasons of on the on the Twitch channel, and um, that show was a lot of fun. You know, it was basically like we just we got uh, four coaches for each season. We got a, a group of students that were all around like the same level, um, and uh, you know we had the coaches like draft students and then work with them. You know, on stream for like two months. And then we had like challenges and then like a final tournament at the end, right, where we can kind of see um, how much, you know, each student uh, improved. And um, I mean, that show, I think, was a really interesting experiment into what you're asking about, because it's like two months is not a lot of time to improve at chess. And um, in fact, if you only have two months with a student, then you're you're even motivated to do things that are (laughs) like, uh, I, I think would be considered let's say, less effective in the long run, right? So things like, let's say, studying openings because, you know, you're going to be playing a certain player or, like, just working on quick tactics because, you know, they're going to be playing, like, rapid chess or, or whatever it is. Right. Um, so it's definitely a balance of, like, yeah, trying to help someone as much as you can in, in the very short term and also, like, yeah, um, making it an interesting show for uh, for the audience. Yeah. Well, I like what you're doing with that because I think it kind of, it blends both the instruction and the entertainment, you know, like uh, you could have done just something pure entertainment, I guess, which is, which is great too. But, but I just, you know, it seems like more um, consistent with the brand of Chess Dojo to have there be still an instruction and education component to it. So the ultimate sense, just sounds, sounds perfect for what you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. We basically, right. Just wanted to be a, just like kind of slightly more serious uh, pog champs because right. the formats really were, were quite similar. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. So let's dive into uh, the main topic of today's episode, annotated game books and how to study them, because this has been arguably, I think I would say top two or three questions that my podcast audience has posed to me that they would like to learn about. They would like to hear a show about I just remember once seeing a video of yours where you, where you basically promoted and argued for the benefits of studying annotated game books. And so, I don't know, I guess that just stuck in my mind. Obviously, you're qualified to teach, you know, every subject under the sun that an adult improver could want to learn. Um, but, you know, we'll pick one for today and uh, we'll go with this one because I know you're a proponent of it. Yeah, no, I, I am very, um, very passionate. Yeah, about annotated game books. I, I do think they are kind of under undervalued in in the chess world so maybe I, hopefully i can change that yeah yeah let's definitely for any for any skeptics out there or people who uh still aren't fully convinced anyway uh hopefully we can change their minds and for those people who want to but are struggling a bit with it hopefully we can provide some clarity for them how to best uh, spend their time with annotated game books so i think that's a perfect segue to what you said just that they should do it so let's start with that why should club players study annotated game books I guess I should start with just kind of um, defining, because I, I think there are like, let's say, two kinds of annotated game books. Um, there's the ones that maybe immediately come to mind, like that are written uh, by a player, like Alakine's 100 Best Games or like by Vinix 100 Selected Games. 
Um, and of course, there are, yeah, many, many famous annotated game collections. Yeah, many of which I'm a fan of. You know, Mikhail Tall has written a really popular one, uh, just Life in Games. Um, I'm a big fan of uh, Shirov's as well, Kramnik's. And okay, I mean, uh, yeah, so many great players <laughs> have written um, written books. So th- those are, I would say, what are kind of generally considered like, let's say, annotated game collections. And uh, yeah, I'm happy to get into why those are just fantastic and and really necessary. Um, but I would also include books that are kind of like Silman's like Reassess Your Chess and like Helstein, um, his books where kind of like uh, a collection of game excerpts hmm. where you know they don't really show you the the full game and annotate the full game opening to end game but they just kind of you know take like a, a chunk of the game that's particularly instructive and then annotate that part and so you're still learning from uh, a variety of of different players and you're learning from their decisions so like fundamentally whether you're going through like the first kind of book or the second kind of book um you're often uh, kind of i would say getting uh, similar things out of it Okay. Yeah. That's a good distinction. In fact, I have a question for you. If maybe there's a third one, just because, um, my own experience, uh, I've done, what am I at now? I think eight or nine that I've done. There's the ones that, I mean, I think it's very similar to the first category that you're talking about, but the difference being that it's a collection of uh, different players as opposed to just, you know, say tall and they're like very heavily annotated and they're trying to teach you a bit like how to be better at chess. I don't know yeah, if that, like that, like the two uh, yeah. like the two uh, Chernov books like yes. most instructive games ever played and yeah I think those I would also include in like the let's say annotated game collections category okay okay cool so yeah with those different categories established what do you see as the key benefits to a club player studying those um, yeah simply put I mean I, I think you know you get to learn from the greatest players of all time chess is like a really hard game as everyone knows. And anyone that's played chess just knows exactly how difficult it is. And you can work on it for hours and hours and still feel like, you know, you're not really making much progress. But I, I think at its core, you know, it's it's a game of, let's say, ideas. And like the more ideas you can kind of learn and pick up from the world's best players. I mean, I think it's kind of self-evident, like that would be extremely helpful. Um, but I also want to say it's more than than just ideas. I feel like there is this kind of misconception out there that if you can just kind of study and drill a bunch of like patterns or themes, then once you get to the board, like, you know, you're good to go. And I would say mm. it's so much harder than that because you know, virtually every like real chess game you have, you're going to reach a position that you haven't seen before where, you know, maybe you have some vague idea of like what you're supposed to do or what the plan is. But part of the difficulty is coming up with a plan by yourself in like an original position and using your previous experience to actually figure out what to do. Like, should you be playing, you know, on the king side, playing like knight h2, f4? Should you be playing on the queen side? You have to figure out like the pace of play. You know, is this a position where you need to do something very quickly because uh, long-term strategically you're worse? Or is this a position where your opponent doesn't have a lot of useful moves and actually it would be better to kind of slow the pace down and just very gently improve your position and not do anything um, too rash or, or direct. So I think like learning this kind of thing where it's like, you know, finding a plan in a position, like deciding what to do, I think it's really hard to improve on this without number one, playing games yourself, which is extremely important. Um, and number two, 
you know, once you, you're already playing, you're analyzing your games. Number two, trying to learn by example, right? From, again, just absolute geniuses of the game. Yeah, I'm just trying to kind of unpack a little bit of what you said. And, you know, you don't necessarily get like this instant pattern recognition just because you read one of Chernoff's books, right? That there is a lot of this nuance and experience that comes with understanding, planning, and pacing. But I think I hear you also saying that doing these annotated game books gets you closer to being able to do those things, right? Like maybe it's not like an instant, ah, I read the book. Now I know the answers to plans and pacing, but it's at least part of how you get to understand those things. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. And um, right. When you read the, you know, the notes of a player who, who played some nice game, you really get an insight into what they were thinking about during the game and like what they were expecting from the opponent. And I think maybe most importantly, or really importantly, you know, how they would have reacted to different ideas that the opponent could try. So like, you know, if you're trying to learn how to play a specific kind of position, let's say like, you know, an isolated queen pawn position, um, you know, it's very, very useful to, to see kind of like, let's say different versions of, of the same thing. Like in this position, if, my opponent had tried this thematic break, I would have responded this way. Um, but once, you know, once H6 is included, now I would have done something different because of the weakness of the G6 square or whatever. And it's like it's those kinds of things that I think are really hard to um, to pick up if, let's say, you know, you're just kind of, um, if you're only relying on that other, let's say, type of book that I described, like the Silman type, where it's just kind of like a collection of nicely chosen examples. And it's like, oh, in this position you know, white played this because of this, this, and this. And then it's like kind of a new position, like, oh, in this position, you know, the player did this, which was really strong. Like those Mm -hmm. kinds of ideas and examples are really useful. But of course, you know, in a game, you might have, let's say, 10 opportunities to sacrifice your bishop on h7, but it's up to you to figure out when it actually works. (laughs) So, and that's the kind of thing I think you, you won't get outside of like, let's say, a really nicely annotated game. Yeah, still a struggle for me, but I'm getting better at it. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> the next question I have for you may depend, like the answer may depend a bit on what skill level we're talking about. So let me try to narrow it a little bit so perhaps you can answer it uh, a little easier. If we're talking about somebody who's a club player, but they're, you know, they're past the like super beginner point where they are hanging a piece every third or fourth move. So at least they're like not doing that anymore. Let's say they're above 1200 or so. At that point, how much of your study time should be devoted to going through annotated game books? Is it a major part? Is it, you know, just like 10% or is, is there any kind of guide that you can offer on, on how much someone should be spending on it? Yeah, definitely. No, that that's a very good question. Um, so I really want to be clear. So I think the most important thing that people at that level and pretty much any level uh, should be doing is like playing serious games and then analyzing them. So that should be like, you know, if you have any time for chess, that should be the first thing that you're doing. Hmm. Um, I would say the second most important thing at that level, provided that you're playing serious games, again, and analyzing them, um, is working on tactics and and calculation. So if you have time for more chess, like, and you want to study a bit and and improve your skills, I would definitely think calculation is the main thing to work on. Because, okay, we all know tactics are super important. And um, calculation is also important when it comes to planning, because you might see a thematic move that you think you should play in the position, but it looks like it hangs a pawn. And if you're not able to calculate 
the justification for the sacrifice or, you know, like the fact that you can hang the pawn and you have like a follow-up tactic that works, um, then it's going to be very hard for you to play the right move, even if you know the idea. So uh, I think calculation is just extremely important. But of course, there's a limit to how much people can really work on their calculation. I think like 45 minutes, an hour a day of like really hard, you know, focused training is is going to be good for most people. Yeah. And so beyond that, if you have time for more chess, this is where I would say, okay, now would be you have time to maybe um, get like a Silman book or a Helstein book, um, depending on, on one's level. For the 1200 level, I mean, I would say, you know, Winning Chess Strategies, for example, really good book um, by, by Sarah Wan and Silman. Um, where they have just a number of nicely annotated games that are, you know, very instructive for that level. And I would say once a player gets a little bit more advanced, um, and actually in, in the training program, you know, we have like a list of books, right, that we recommend for, for each level. So we don't really start with any game collections until I think around like 1600. We, we recommend uh, Zurich 1953, which is like a classic uh, annotated game collection by uh, by Bronstein, um, where he goes through this uh, just huge tournament with like all these like fantastic players. And then as players get stronger, I would say this is where I would start to recommend more like kind of classic game collections where you're learning from a specific player and and their game. So like Tall's Life and Games. Uh, again, I'm a big fan of like Botvinnik's 100 Selected Games. Um, personally, for me, I learned a ton from. Uh, Fisher's 60 Memorable Games, which is an absolute classic, and uh, Shirov's book as well, Fire on Board, uh, was very instrumental for me personally. Actually, I think I discussed this on the 64 Chess Podcast, if I remember correctly. Okay. Um, so people can maybe listen to that if they want to hear me discuss like uh, the, the Fisher and, and Shirov books in, in more detail. But uh, yeah, I would say once a player is getting to like 18, 1900, um, 2000, you know, uh, over the board rating, this is when it's going to be most useful to go through, um, some of these classic books. I see. That's interesting to me. Uh, two points that came to my mind as you talked about this one is in your training programs with the chess dojo, you really don't recommend, or uh, you know, put it as homework, at least, I guess I could say an annotated game book until they're 1600 that I heard that right. Correct. Yeah. I mean, I guess we, we do, um, suggest Chernev for uh, one of the, the lower levels. Okay. Um, but yeah, we don't suggest any of these like classic because um, I guess maybe a key distinction here is, you know, a book like a Chernev book is written to be super instructive, mm-hmm. whereas a book like Tall's Life and Games is not necessarily written to be instructive, but it's, I think, more to just kind of represent like who tall is as a player and as an author if that makes sense so yeah just kind of trying to share more about like you know how he sees the game or how he plays the game sharing insight of course that ends up being incredibly instructive um but it let's say it's not the main main goal of the books okay yeah so the books the annotated game books that are say authored by the greats of the past that can wait a little bit (laughs) further down the road okay yeah that makes sense the other thing that stood out to me that you mentioned was that even though you prioritized playing and analyzing your games, one and number two, calculation and tactics, as the first places to spend your time as an improver, uh, annotated game books still made number three. I mean, three is still pretty high. <laughs> oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I think it's um, it's really useful. Of course, it, you know, it depends on 
on the student, you know, if someone is uh, not good at end games and hasn't really studied a lot of end games, then, you know, in the third place, I would put a book like Endgame Strategy by uh, Sharashevsky. Okay. Um, but uh, but that book I would kind of include in this category as well, because it's it's similar to like the learn by example type of books like the Silman um, and the Helstein books, except here it's, you know, maybe using a little bit uh, longer chunks of the game. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Okay, so one of the top questions that I've received about how to effectively study the annotated game books come with the, you know, the variation lines that are in, I think, almost all of them. The question that always comes up about that is, should I play through all the variations or just some of them, maybe even none of them? Uh, But basically, if it's, I mean, if it's all of them, we can talk about why to justify doing all of them. But if it's some of them, how do you decide which ones? Yeah, no, it's, it's, again, a very good question. And it's a classic struggle, I think, for anyone going through a really, really dense book. Um, So for instance, like My Great Predecessors, I think is is a brilliant series, but um, the variations do get very, very heavy, especially with like computer analysis. Hmm. And uh, so I guess I think what's important for me is kind of remembering, let's say, the fundamental goal of like going through a book like that. And I think it's, uh, for me, it's to extra- extract ideas from the players. It's like to pick up ideas and in uh, themes that maybe you can one day use in your own games. Um, and, and so you're really trying to, let's say, you know, retain a- as much as you can. Um, and that means, you know, going through a game multiple times if if you need to. I mean, for me, like if I go through a game once, I'm probably not going to remember it very well, you know, a month, couple months down the line. Um, but if I play through it multiple times and, you know, I kind of refresh my mind on like the key ideas of the game, then I feel like, you know, I'll remember it for a long time. So it's it's a balance of, let's say, yeah, how much you want to retain uh, the game and how much you want to enjoy the process. <laughs> because I, I don't think it's particularly <laughs> fun to go through variations um, if there's not a lot of uh, words you know, included yeah. with, with the lines. And so, so for me, like, I think the first uh, real serious collection I read, I think it was Fisher's uh, 60 memorable games. And I enjoyed like every second of that book. Cause for me, I felt like Fisher in terms of chess, you know, was just like an absolute, you know, hero, right. uh, just like such a strong player kind of uh, self-taught. So I kind of, I mean, I, I've worked with coaches my whole life, but at the time I, I was kind of on my own and just like, doing a lot of work, just like studying books. And, and so I felt kind of like, like a, a relation to him in that sense. Um, or, you know, as Jesse would say, kind of like going into the cave. And um, for me, like the fact that he wrote, you know, like to my eyes, let's say the greatest player of all time wrote a book, you know, analyzing 60 of his best games. I mean, imagine if you could like sit down with Fisher at a chessboard and you play through 60 of his games and he shows you in every position, Oh, in this position, I was thinking this, this, and this, and in this position I was calculating this. I mean, like you couldn't pay for that kind of training today, you know? Yeah. Uh, and here it is in a book. And I felt like it was literally like the closest thing possible. And, and so I just appreciated like every single word. And, and specifically I, I was amazed with just how deep he would he would calculate i mean i don't know for sure maybe he kind of embellished some of the variations as some players have been kind of rumored to do um <laughs> but no to me it seemed like he calculated quite a lot and 
especially his evaluations for positions, you know, I just found so useful. Like he, uh, you know, he ends at some position and he just says like, you know, black is busted or white is busted. And then I would look at the position and um, I would kind of look at it with my own eyes. And, and, and to me, you know, I wouldn't always agree or understand his evaluation. And so those were the moments that I felt like were the most useful, like, okay, a strong player is looking at this and it's like, oh yeah, it's hopeless. And I'm not seeing it. So clearly like the, so much I could learn from in this moment. Cause of course his evaluation, you know, is probably going to be uh, correct. So, so yeah, that the, for me, the distinction is like, if the book has a lot of like words and explanations, then I think it's totally worth it to do the extra work and uh, go through, go through the variations, put them on the board, um, you know, look at them, reflect on them, try to see the position through your own eyes and, when something doesn't make sense to you, like this is exactly the moment where you should pause and try to learn from it because it means, you know, there's something you don't understand about the position or maybe there's a concrete thing you're not getting, but it's definitely like a, you know, a learning opportunity. Um, but for the books and uh, I, again, I really enjoy my great predecessors. I think it's a fantastic series. And um, I mean, I've heard so many grandmasters talk about it as being like one of their favorite uh, series of books. But yeah, that book, it's not a ton of words, you know, in like when you get like the blocks of computer lines. And so those I, I would often just skip, hmm. you know, I and I would just kind of read about like the players and, and, and read, let's say, the important parts of the game. But yeah, if I see a paragraph of like all computer lines, I'm just skipping it or I'm just going to I'm just going to skip to the end where it just tells me the conclusion. So this move was the best. Like, oh, OK, because the other thing is like this book was. Uh, I don't mean to like really rag on these books, but I mean, okay, they were written with the engines at the time that are way weaker than the engines we have now. So I'm sure the analysis isn't even uh, correct. Yeah. Um, and so that's why to me, it's not as useful. Like, okay, Fisher's analysis probably had mistakes as well. I mean, any player, you know, that wrote a book before the age of engines is going to have mistakes in their analysis, but it's still a useful analysis because you see uh, the game of chess through their eyes. Sure. Um, Whereas if a book has just a bunch of computer lines, it's not really insightful. It's just, well, that's just whatever the computer was spitting out in 2004, 2006 or whatever. And so it's probably not even going to be correct half the time. Yeah. Wow. Lots of great points there. One that you mentioned early on that I loved was this you know, to, in, in answering this question, do you study, do you review all of the variations that are given within the book or, or some of them or none of them? You brought up the point of like, just what's enjoyable. <laughs> and I think that's a, a critical distinction. I've noticed that that's a, a factor in how to answer a lot of these improvement questions, right? Like, cause there's, what should you do to 100% optimize your improvement or learning ability? And then there's also just what's practical, like what are you willing to do? <laughs> Maybe it's you know the thing that would escalate your uh, improvement more than anything else. But if you find it to be so drudgerous that you can't even stomach it, <laughs> then it's almost like what's the point, right? So I really appreciate that distinction. Not to say that it would be that bad, but just you know using hyperbole to make a point. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, absolutely. Uh, no, I mean it, it's definitely something I, I believe in. Um, that like. If you enjoy what you're doing, you're going to do more of it and it'll probably have more of an impact, I, I would think. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, there is there is some balance because, yeah, you can imagine um, a player who like maybe, uh, you know, desperately needs to work on their calculation, but just hates practicing it. 
um, or you know desperately needs to work on their end games, um, but uh, they yeah don't want to like drill like theoretical end games, um, and so there is a balance. I think ultimately it's kind of an issue with like let's say motivation and and how you're approaching things because I think okay most people out there like they generally like they want to improve their game you know they want to see their rating go up they want to feel like a stronger player and so you have to you have to kind of make that connection like well here's the thing you need to do to uh to actually uh improve so i think like with most things there's just kind of a there's kind of a balance there um but the secret would be to somehow convince yourself that you enjoy doing the hard stuff you know uh, like right. you just have to kind of frame it in a way like, okay, this is kind of boring or painful now, but at the end of the line, like I'm going to play end games like uh, Carlson, right. Or I'm going to be able to calculate like taller, you know, you have to kind of, um, you have to kind of see, I guess the, uh, the light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, I would just uh, run by you, like as one example, what I do and just maybe get your feedback on that. And hopefully that feedback can help people who listen too. So um, I set uh, one minimum standard for myself when I go through these variations, which I got from Dan Heisman, which is to at least go through the variations that explain something that you didn't understand. So if there was, you know, maybe you were wondering, okay, well, why wouldn't you play knight f6 here? I don't understand. Isn't that the obvious, obvious move? And then in the variations, it shows you, here's why you can't play that. Here's why that would mm-hmm. be a mistake. Then I definitely look at that if it's answering a question that I had or couldn't understand. So like as a minimum, I go through those to make sure that I'm not misunderstanding something that was on my mind. That's like my floor. Yeah. I would say, right, that's kind of the the easy stuff. The real question is what to do when you have a question that's not answered in the text. Mm-hmm. Great point. <laughs> how, to, how to handle <laughs> that. Um, I mean, I think so... What you're doing that's really good is you're looking at the position with your own with your own eyes and, and asking questions. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the most important things about the process. So it's not just about playing through the game, but it's actually trying to, number one, make sure you understand like what happened and let's say like the details and what would have happened if, if something else um, had been played instead. Um, and yeah, to, to that effect, it's very important to look at the position yourself and be like, well, you know, isn't this just a free pawn or, you know, especially if like a piece is hanging and then they didn't take it and then it's not explained why they didn't take some, some free piece. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you might have the wrong position. Like, you know, <laughs> yeah, who knows, right? Like, it's very important to like pay attention to when something just, just doesn't uh, fit or doesn't uh, make sense to you. Um, so what's your response to, to what you brought up about, you know, okay. So you're saying definitely look at the explanations for when you agree that when you need an explanation, when you don't understand why a particular move or line was played and you're saying, but you know, when it doesn't give you that answer and you still have that question, I think you're suggesting to then maybe just take that, take a moment and try to figure it out yourself. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. I think the, the ideal um, plan there would be to spend a couple of minutes to try to figure it out yourself. Um, of course, make sure you have the right position because you don't want to like kind of be staring at something. It's like queen is hanging and then, yeah, you had the wrong position. Um, but yeah, definitely take a couple minutes to figure it out yourself. And um, I would say if you want to go above and beyond, and, and I would do this when I was really, you know, when I couldn't figure it out or I was really still just confused, um, to plug it into the engine and, and ask the engine because it might hmm. it might enlighten you. There might be some tactical detail that you're missing. Um, or your, your evaluation might be correct. You know, maybe there was another 
there was a move that is very obvious and just just wasn't considered. And and you know you were correct to be uh, worried about that move. Um, in some rare cases, you might even find a mistake in the book, especially if it's like uh, an older book. Um, I mean, they're they're going to have lots of mistakes that you know the engine um, uh, can find. But uh, the most useful thing is that you actually found it. Uh, yourself, you came up with the idea, and then you kind of uh, check it with the engine, um, versus let's say just running the whole game through the engine and then looking for the moments that you know seem significant. Yeah, no, that's great advice. Do you recommend that the game books be studied online or with a physical board, or does it even matter which one you do? Um, yeah, actually, let me um, jump back to the the previous thing real quick because I should say sure. This was this was back when when I was studying these books. Like I wasn't really on chess internet much. Nowadays, I would say if you're going through a book and you have a question and something doesn't make sense to you, I would actually suggest posting the position like online or on Reddit or you know in, in the dojo, for example. We have like many channels for that, um, and and see what people think first before uh, just checking with the engine. It's more time consuming, but I think that would actually be kind of more interesting. Um, but uh, but sometimes you're just missing like a simple tactical thing that the engine can just kind of point out for you. Um, and so that's why it's, yeah. yeah, it's always kind of nice to, to have that. Sure. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, sorry, your... Oh, the question was, um, yeah, I can repeat it. Uh, do you recommend that the game books be studied online or with a physical board or does it even matter which one you do? Yeah, so... I always studied with uh, a physical board. Um, I always enjoyed it more, and I felt like it made sense. Uh, I mean, because especially because I'm a tournament player, so I'm, I'm playing OTB. Um, to me, there was something about trying to see the board through the eyes of the player. You know, like hmm. Fisher had this position in 1963, and then he calculated a seven-move combination and won the game. And so to me, one of the best things, and I think most useful things was setting it up right at that position and then trying to visualize myself the full combination you know knowing the moves and to get the feeling like this is what it would be like to calculate the full line over the board um and i'll even have a clock there you know just to kind of simulate the uh oh wow the environment <laughs> i don't think i'll have it running but I'll, you know it's just there i can see it and maybe i'll even hit the clock as i'm playing out the moves it's a nice touch i like that <laughs> yeah because i mean again to me that's that was always just one of the most useful things. It's just like, this is how a player approached this position, you know? I mean, and um, so to, to that effect, that's why I've always felt like OTB is going to be better than uh, looking at a game uh, like in chess base or something. Um, mm-hmm. Of course, it, you can be a lot faster in chess base and you can play through a lot more games um, and you have the engine right there. So if you have a question, you just you know, you can turn it on and, and, and see. Um, you don't have to like set up the position or find the game again or anything like that. Um, so I think there's there's a balance. Um, let's say if I'm just looking at games randomly, like I'm studying some opening and I'm trying to look through a bunch of games, I'm more likely than not just going to be on the computer for that. So I can look through more games and because I don't know which games are going to be interesting or significant. And maybe once I find one, then I'll, I'll spend more time on it. Um, but if I'm going through like a book and the games are like specifically chosen and, you know, very instructive then yeah i feel like for tournament players you know you're going to be playing otb i think it's useful to uh to practice your visualization as well 
Yeah, for sure. I think I couldn't endorse that enough myself, my own experience that I need, I need that time at the board because I do so many OTB tournaments. I also feel like, and I'm curious to uh, hear what you have to say about this. Just, I feel like with a physical board, I'm more likely to take the time to slow down and calculate um, than I would online, just on average. I don't know how you feel about that. Like just more patient to look through everything. Well, I mean, absolutely. You have to move the pieces with your hand. You can't just keep clicking the the right button, right. you know, on your keyboard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's just, you know, it's impossible to speed through it. Right, right. What about the the subject of using a separate board for those variations? And maybe I should have asked that earlier just to have everything flow a little better. But do you recommend having that second board to play them out? Or do you recommend, I guess it depends on what skill level you are, but maybe trying to visualize some of the lines in your head instead? Um, yeah, you know, I've never, I've never done that. I've always just used uh, a single board. Um, on the topic of, of visualizing the lines, it's kind of interesting because I think, um, I think Dvoretsky said something like uh, every printed diagram in a book, you know, is an invitation not to take out a chessboard or something, something like that. So he was kind of, um, he was denigrating all the diagrams because he felt like people are just going to read from the book and then not, not play through the moves. And I, I think I have a similar take on it. I feel like when you're going through a game collection, I mean, the main, the main goal is not exactly to work on your visualization there. You know, visualization, I think, is like a very mechanical skill and it kind of, it behaves like a muscle. It's like, you know, you have to train it consistently and it'll improve. And if you don't work on it, it'll kind of um, atrophy. Um, so I'm not sure I always understood the benefit of like just kind of casually working your visualization. I feel like, you know, either you're sitting there hardcore calculating, really pushing yourself or, um, or you know, you don't worry about the visualization, just put the variations on the board and make sure you understand the position when you're actually looking at it, you know? Yeah. So it'd be yeah, the equivalent of just like doing just like, you know, a little bit of exercise randomly throughout the day, which I think would not be as effective as, you know, really trying to push yourself, let's say, to failure once a day. Right, right. Do you think it's worth reading any of the annotated game books that we're talking about a second time through? Or is it more valuable just to start fresh with a new book? You know, I'm not sure. I mean, I... I've definitely gone through games multiple times. Um, I think uh, usually what I'll do maybe is uh, maybe I'll just play through the game um, online and see if I, you know, how well I remember it. And if not, then maybe I'll go back to the book and, and kind of reread it. I don't think I've really read a lot of books more than once. Maybe like, I, like I'm sure I've read the Fisher book more than once and maybe um, Shirov's book as well. I mean, I, I'm sure it'd be useful because, you know, you're reading through it once, you're probably not going to remember a lot of it. Um, but I can understand if you want to read something new. I guess for me, the feeling is like, if you really work through a book, it should have kind of an impact where, you know, you should be able to remember, uh, let's say, the key points of a lot of the games that you went through. And if not, then maybe it's a sign like you maybe didn't spend enough time on it or it didn't really, let's say, didn't really make a huge imprint in your memory. Okay. Yeah, that's good. So to that effect, do you do you recommend some note taking at all? Like maybe just, uh, I don't know, three to five key points from a game you just went through to kind of solidify it in your mind? I think that would be helpful. I, I 
I probably didn't do that very much. I think I did it a couple times. Um, like, you know, game one today, I studied Alakine Oive and, and here were like the three moves that I, you know, really, um, uh, took inspiration from. I think that would be, it sounds like that would be quite useful in terms of, uh, retention. So for people that enjoy doing that, I think that would be a big plus. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I do a little bit of that, uh, especially if something like really stands out or there's a key, key statement made in the, in the annotations, just like maybe they described a principle that was at play that I wasn't aware of before or something like that, I'll write it down to, to try to help remember it. Yeah. And I mean, I think it it's also just good for consistency. You get in this kind of routine, like day one, I studied these games and this is what I learned. Day two, I studied these games. Right, right. Yeah, exactly. Okay, great. So I think that covers a lot of what I think will help people with these annotated game books, give them a good primer on how to go about it. Uh, your advice was fantastic. In fact, for as much as I've studied how I should be studying annotated game books. You still had a lot of new insights for me that that I was that I hadn't thought about or um, hadn't considered. So I think a lot of people will get a lot out of that. So I just like to transition now uh, and kind of uh, finish our interview on the subject of chess dojos. At least the time of this recording, new programs with your with your training programs. I know there's descriptions of it online and such, but for people listening just right now, maybe haven't read those or heard much of what it's about. Can you just give a brief summary of what the training programs are? Yeah, 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 absolutely. I mean, so so basically it's uh, right. It's a project that we're, we're very excited about me, David and, and Jesse. And, um, you know, obviously having like an instructional educational chess channel, I mean, people ask us for, for lessons all the time. Um, people often ask for advice. You know, I've probably answered like thousands of questions over the years of just like, Hey, I'm this rating, you know, how do I improve? I feel like my tactics are okay. Like, what should I do? Or, Hey, I'm this rating, you know, do you, do you think I need to study end games or you know, whatever? <laughs> and, um, you know, we, we just felt like the best way to, let's say, reach the most amount of people and to also, um, uh, simplify things for ourselves so we don't have to just keep giving the same answers over and over again. Uh, we just wanted to create our own training program. So the people that are interested in kind of learning from us and following our, uh, let's say, improvement philosophies, like we have just like a fully fledged plan for them. So at its core, it's basically two things. It's kind of like a complete uh, study plan. Um, so we have a list of books that we recommend for each level. We have tactics assignments, like you got to get a certain score in uh, in Puzzle Rush and, and, and Puzzle Survival. We have like a number of tactics books that we recommend for different levels and game books as well. Actually, I mean, a, a lot of stuff. I mean, we have like a list of games to study where it's like a bunch of um, classic games. We have like a game to memorize for each level as well. Um which includes just some of the best games of all time that we think people should play through, you know, multiple times and get to the point where they can just literally replay the game uh, from memory because they just, they, they understand it uh, so well. And so we have the structured training program. It, it starts from uh, literally zero to 2,500. Um, or I would say it starts from someone who knows the rules of the game. Uh, the second part is a group. It's a cohort to to do the whole program with. So we built a second Discord server that's kind of exclusive for members of the training program. You have to be a member of the program to, to get access to the Discord. 
and and that one is just designed just for everyone that's you know actively improving and working through uh, the plants. So we have a number of different groups. I think we have like twenty groups. We have like zero to four hundred, four to six hundred, and then we have like two hundred point rating bands up to a thousand, and then starting from a thousand. Um, every 100 points is its own group. So 1,000 to 1,100, 1,100 to 1,200, and so on, all the way up to, to 2,500. Uh, and I know people always ask, like, what uh, what rating I'm talking about. So in our mind, we're using uh, FIDE ratings. And um, on our site, we have just a rough conversion chart for people that have never played a FIDE game or don't have, like, a USCF rating or something like that. Um, if you're only playing, like, online, then we have let's just say a rough conversion chart for where we think, you know, someone would, would fit in. Uh, it's definitely a very, very difficult question because I think online chess and OTB are very different and yeah. um, people can vary, you know, there's no perfect formula. Some people are just better online. Some people are just better OTB. It's just, that's just <laughs> right. how it happens. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, we have a rough translator for people to be able to find uh, the right group, but basically the way it works is if you subscribe to the program, you get access to all the plans, so zero to 2,500. So you can see uh, what we recommend for each level. And you can, let's say, place yourself accordingly based on uh, your rating or where you think you, you're at. And then the second part, again, I, I would say just as importantly, is the uh, the cohorts. These are the players that are going to be working together. And um, I should say, I haven't even mentioned, let's say, the two most important tasks that we have in the study plan. <laughs> Um, so number one, every level is required to play a certain number of classical time control games, um, either online or, or OTB, um, and then annotate those games. So they have to analyze them and then specifically put down their thoughts on the game, what they were thinking, what they think the mistakes were, the improvements were for both sides, and so on. And so the point of the groups is so that people can actually share their analysis with others and uh, everyone can kind of support and help each other in terms of this process. Um, so for us, I, we believe, you know, playing and analyzing your games is just the absolute most important thing, almost like a non-starter. Like if you're not doing that, uh, personally, I don't believe you can really improve that much because you you have to practice, you know, you have to practice integrating what you're learning and, and your skills in, uh, you know, real life combat, you know, a real, a real chess game. Yeah. Um, additionally to that, we also have a, a number of sparring positions. So for every level, we've got um, opening, middle game, and end game sparring positions that are just kind of specific, uh, like thematic positions that we think are really, really useful to play out. Um, we also have like some theoretical end games that everyone should learn um, at different levels. But uh, the the sparring positions is another part where the cohorts are, are super important because you need you need training partners that are willing to, to play out positions against you. Um, and that kind of goes back to our philosophy that, you know, one of the most useful ways of training is to do it with another person that can help you and, and motivate you. Hmm. So yeah, a couple of questions about this and it all sounds fantastic. It really does. You emphasize the importance of analyzing your own games in this training program. You recommend that people annotate the classical games that they've played and to go over those with others. I'm curious, is there value in analyzing or annotating your own games specifically, like writing out, I guess, what you thought at different positions, even if it was just by yourself? Obviously, there's more benefit to doing it with someone else, but even by yourself, is that something you recommend? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that that's the 
more important part, I would say, is um, you kind of reflecting on your own games, analyzing your decisions, uh, trying to understand, you know, why you made certain mistakes. Did you misevaluate something? Did you miscalculate something? Hmm. Um, I mean, Jesse and David, they, they have uh, their own thoughts on, you know, exactly why game analysis is so important. Um, hmm. But for me, it's like, you know, you, you played a game and now you can kind of reflect on your thought process. And when you analyze like 10, 20 of your games or just, you know, games from one tournament, you will definitely find patterns if you're paying attention to the mistakes that you're making. Um, so, you know, typical types of mistakes include um, missing the opponent's ideas. It's something that I do frequently. My opponent has a threat and and I don't see it. And mm-hmm. like, yeah, after analyzing like a whole tournament, I can see like, you know, five, six moments where this happened and um, it's it can be quite eye-opening and it tells you exactly like, you know, how you need to adjust and, and what you need to uh, to work on. There are, I mean, many, many types of, you know, biases and, and mistakes that you can um, discover about yourself. Another very common one is, let's say, an unwillingness to give up material. Um, some players, they don't even consider moves that lose material, even if it might actually end up being, you know, a very strong sacrifice, yeah. um, which is a problem because, you know, in order to find the strongest move, you need to first consider it. You know, you need, it needs to be on your radar. Um I would say another very typical issue is, let's say, uh, defending passively, where when you might have like a active counterattack available, that's actually much stronger. So someone attacks a pawn, and then the only moves you're looking at are moves that just passively defend the pawn, rather than counterattacking or finding a way to sacrifice the pawn or figuring out that the pawn is actually not even hanging because of again some other tactic. Um, and so once you like start discovering these moments, you, you start to build patterns. I think that's a crucial, crucial step to actually uh, improving. Yeah. Is there interaction with you, Jesse or David, with the students in the training programs directly? In other words, do you answer questions or do you do any group coaching lessons or anything like that? Yeah. So things have, you know, basically just started and, uh, you know, we're still working on um, actually just adding like tons of content, you know, to the program itself. But uh, yeah, we're definitely there in the Discord um, answering questions as much as we can. Um, Jesse's been doing like daily streams where he uh, responds to people's questions uh, about the program. Hmm. Um, And uh, the plan is to do these kind of like office hours streams where we're just kind of around. And if someone wants to like uh, submit a game that they annotated, you know, we can look at it and give them feedback. Um, Or, you know, if they have questions about like the material that they're studying, um, cause it's really like, it's a, it's a study plan, right? It's not like, um, a bunch of videos with lessons like, oh, here's how to play this kind of position. No, it's a plan. It's like at this level, you need to read this book and, and, um, learn these end games. And now you're on your own, go do the work. Like, and honestly, I think that's, um, well, that was what a lot of people were, were asking for. They're like, what do I need to do <laughs> to get better? Well, here you go. Um, to the, the question earlier about the, the cohorts themselves. Yeah, I think it's very useful to get feedback from people that are around your level um, because they, you know, will definitely see stuff that you didn't and they might point out stuff for you and and different ideas. Um, Of course, it's even better to get it from a stronger player, right, because they'll be able to to really share a lot of insight. Um, But even within the groups um, themselves, I think it really makes the process a lot easier um, and already people have been, you know, jumping on Discord voice calls, you know, sharing their screen, analyzing their games together, or like going through like a Botvinnik game together. Um, 
And yeah, we're definitely trying to promote um, a lot of the, the group work as much as we can. And then, yeah, trying to be there and, and support people when they have uh, questions about how to do something. That's amazing. I mean, that's incredible value that you're providing. I think almost everybody I know in chess could use that. <laughs> um, it's hard to think of someone I couldn't recommend that to. Uh, so that's, I love this project. I think it's amazing. I think it's really, really needed too. Cause you know, well, you know, there, there are players yeah. out there um, that are essentially already doing these things. Hmm. And um, you know, I would say for them, like maybe they, don't need the program. Like if you're already someone who knows like, okay, you got to work on your calculation. You already have books that you're reading and you like, you know, you should be working on Mm -hmm. um, and you're playing games, you're analyzing your games and maybe you have some training partners. um, Then I would say you don't particularly like need the program. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think it does provide, you know, what we believe are the most important things, which essentially just like a structure, you know, some accountability, like here's what to do. And here's how to do it um, and people to do it with. So for folks that don't have like training partners or don't have people to work with, then I think the program is uh, fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Great point. Just one last question I have for you, I guess, probably for the interview and uh, on your training programs, which is, and I actually kind of enjoy talking about this, (laughs) the uh, emphasis on classical games in the program. You've mentioned to me, and I think it was mentioned somewhere online too, that there's been some resistance, shall we say, to to having to do classical games that often. First, let me ask, did you expect that kind of pushback or resistance? I think we we did a little bit, maybe not to this extent, <laughs> to, be, <laughs> to be honest. I mean, uh, let me explain our, our point of view, because I, I yeah. really felt like I get where people are coming from. Um, it's... Uh, a couple of things. Number one, it's hard to find time to play classical. Um, so if you have to go play a tournament, you know, that's like a full weekend um, or, you know, just a full day at least. Um, if you're playing a classical game online, like let's say one a week, that's still uh, could be like three, four hours. Right. Um, specifically for the program, uh, we recommend for players uh, 1600 and up that they should be playing 90 plus 30 as a minimum time control. So they can play games faster than that. Obviously, they can do whatever they want. But in terms of the the games and the analysis, anything shorter than that uh, doesn't really count for us. Nice. Okay, so I get excited hearing that, but go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and then we we reduced it um, a bit for the lower level. So if you're 1,200 to 1,600, then the minimum is 60 plus 30. If you're under 1,200, it's like uh, game in 45. If you're under 800, it's game in 30. You know, we think that's um, good enough. Although Jesse, he was pushing for for longer games. He was he would, if it was up to him, everyone would be, would be playing 90 uh, plus 30. <laughs> um, so I get the, I definitely get the resistance. It takes a lot of time, so you have to block off, you know, three four hours, five hours for for 90 plus 30. Um, you know, you really shouldn't be distracted in that time. So you shouldn't be doing anything else while you're playing mm-hmm. if you're taking it fully seriously. Of course, anyone that, know, you know, it's been to a tournament knows like these days, like you can't be on your phone. Like you, it's just you, the board and, and your opponent for, for several hours. Right. Um, so at home, it's kind of harder to do this because you do have distractions. And yeah, I mean, I totally get like, you know, you live with a family, you have a dog, like there, <laughs> there's going to be distractions. Um I guess the thing is, it's like, we want to be very upfront about what's needed to get better. Yeah. And and in my experience, like, if, if you're not 
playing and really challenging yourself and, and going for uh, what Jesse calls the deep thinking and the deep stuff, I think it's really hard to fundamentally uh, improve as a player. And it's it's tough, but I mean, that's that's kind of the thing. You know, not everyone improves at chess, you know, all the time. And most players, they don't really improve linearly. It's not like in, like in bodybuilding where you just gain half a pound of muscle a week, you know, for 12 weeks and you just <laughs> progressively get better. Right. I think getting better at chess like requires you to really like push yourself and, um, you know, really work hard for consistent amount of time, like months at a time. And only then after several months, then that's when you might start to feel like, wow, you're actually a stronger player. You're seeing more, you're calculating faster uh, and, and so on. Um, and so, uh, yeah, some people have very busy schedules and they're not able to play classical chess that often. And I mean, I think that's fine. You know, it's like, I, I don't think chess improvement really happens overnight and or that quickly. I think the players that do improve quickly are the ones that, of course, spend a lot of time and they're playing a lot and they're playing classical games and they're analyzing their games and really putting in um, a lot of work. So if someone doesn't have a lot of time, it's unfortunate, but I mean, honestly, I just think it's just going to take them longer. It doesn't mean that they're not able to, um, to improve, but I just think that's, that's how it goes. Um, So there, there are a lot of people, you know, they, they would rather just be able to play rapid and Mm -hmm. I get the, you know, I get the reasoning behind that. You feel like you get more games in and you're just like kind of practicing a little bit. Um, but to me, you know, I was thinking about this recently. It's kind of like, you know, okay, and like in golf, right? If you have a full golf course, it's like 18 holes. And that's that's quite a journey, you know, to get from the start, start to finish. Right. And I think the analogy here is that a lot of people, they would rather just spend 30 minutes at the driving range every day, 30 minutes at like the putting uh, green, and they don't really want to play the full 18 holes. Or maybe they want to play like one or two holes of golf and then and then go go home. Right. <laughs> and it's like, okay, yeah, you're still golfing, but you're not getting like the full the full experience, you know, a long uh classical game. Yeah. Yeah, well, I'm I have so much to say about it and that I would love to add. Uh <laughs> but I'll just I'll just mention a couple of uh brief things. One is I love that you're doing that, that you're putting that emphasis on it. One, because it's honest. I mean, it's just, you know, not trying to to be harsh with people's personal time or anything. It's just the nature of chess, right? And to see that kind of consistent and significant growth, you know, classical games are what's necessary for that. And I, you know, I feel like it's a world where that's a chess world that's moving more towards faster time controls. And I understand that to some degree, there's convenience and there's entertainment in that. But that I think if more people just gave it a shot, with classical time controls where, where maybe they haven't in the past one, they might enjoy it more than they thought uh, they would, that, that there's a lot of enjoyment in longer time controls. And then also they might start to really love the progress that they see as well. And that can, that can also be a fuel for it. So I was curious to, to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah. I mean, I think at its heart, you know, chess is a game that uh, should be played at classical time controls. I know there's, Lots of people that are fans of <laughs> uh, speed chess, like Blitz and Rapid. And and personally, I mean, I really enjoy Blitz and Rapid as well. Um, I think Aronian said recently, like almost every player enjoys Rapid. And mm-hmm. um, he was talking about the American Cup, which had this like double elimination format where first you play classical and then if you get eliminated, you play Rapid. And he's like, yeah, it's such a pleasure to, to be able to play Rapid after you get eliminated. 
Um, <laughs> and uh, I totally get that. I, to me, it's just a, it's just a different format. Of, it's honestly just a different game to me. Like you have yep. less time. You got to be a lot faster. And uh, it, it doesn't pay off to, to sit there and, and think deeply for like 10 minutes. Um, whereas in classical, uh, it's kind of what it's all about in, in many cases. Um, I think it was uh, uh, this uh, chess punk on Twitter, Jim Jones. He wrote a fantastic thread that I remember about uh, going to like his first OTV tournament. And um, he was also someone that had, I think, been just mainly playing online chess and maybe didn't really get the whole classical thing. Um, and then once he actually like traveled to a tournament and had like the full weekend experience, he, you know, he wrote about how, you know, he realized like, wow, it's just a completely uh, different game. And there's so much more to it when it's like, yeah, you're sitting there with your opponent for hours and it's like a battle. And, you know, you only have, let's say four games that tournament or six games that tournament. It's not like online where it's like you blunder your queen. Okay. GG go next. Right. It's like (laughs) every game counts. Every move counts and you're you're sitting there you're nervous it's stressful um ideally you you enjoy the experience of playing because that's that's what it's all about um and actually it's interesting you know i was definitely one a player who kind of didn't always let's say enjoy classical like sometimes it would just feel like kind of a slog i'm surprised Um, to hear that (laughs) yeah well there are times where you know it's like if if you're not feeling good about your chest, then you just kind of feel stuck and you just feel like you're just making the same mistakes over and over again. And it's like, it can be very frustrating. Um, but uh, when the pandemic hit and suddenly we weren't allowed to play OTB chess anymore, suddenly I realized like, wow, how much I missed it. And now every tournament I've had since I've been back, I mean, I've just been so, so grateful to be able to sit down at a board uh, and play against, uh, you know, a strong opponent. Um, that's so, amazing. yeah, I, I really think that's what um, chess is all about. And uh, of course, it's just this is just my opinion and, and how I think people should approach uh, chess improvement. I think blitz and, and rapid, they reflect your instincts and they're good for kind of like assessing your current level. Um, but I don't think they're they're so great for improvement because you don't really have a lot of time. And I guess the the really deep down the the key point here is like, you know, when you analyze your games, you notice your biases, right? You notice that you're not willing to sacrifice material, even though it's called for. You notice that you're often overly protective against your opponent's sacrifices, even though they didn't, they didn't actually have a threat in the position. So you notice things about yourself. And that's kind of the first thing, the first step I would say to correcting, uh, those biases. I used to have a, I would say a pretty strong bias where I would never want to open the position. If I had a choice between capturing a pawn and opening things up or (laughs) pushing and taking space, I would always take space. And at a certain point I noticed like, oh man, there's so many positions where if I just open things up, I'm just checkmating the guys, just game over. And once (laughs) I realized like how many of these opportunities I'm leaving on the table, you know, the next couple of times I had the similar choice, you know, you still have the same instincts, you know, you still want to to close the position or, or whatever it is. But in classical, you have the time to reflect on those instincts and then realize, wait, I've been here before. I remember seeing something like this where like, yeah, I really should have taken and opened it up. And and now you're much more willing to kind of consider new ideas and ideas that are better than your, let's say, uh, first instincts. 
And that's not something I think you often get in Blitz and Rapid. You just don't have time to reflect on the position. So for me, that's that's really where, where the growth happens. Oh, that's a really fascinating point. I hadn't thought about that before, where classical doesn't just give you more time to calculate per se, which is good in of itself, but but it allows you to maybe put the brakes for a second on your uh, worst tendencies in chess, the ones that don't allow you to win so well, and course correct in the moment because you've had time to reflect on it. I hadn't heard that before as a as a benefit to classical chess, but that's that, I mean, that strikes me as being absolutely true and and uh, really powerful to think about. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I have um, a very memorable moment for me. I'm, I'm sure I talked about this on our um, on our YouTube channel. Maybe I'll try to look up the video and I'll, I'll link it to you. But um, I remember I had a game against a player um, where I could have sacrificed an exchange for some very nice positional compensation. And um, I didn't do it. I kind of chickened out. And then I was like, worse, I barely made a draw. And afterwards, I was analyzing the game. And um, it, and and at first, the engine wasn't super optimistic about the sacrifice. But then once I started analyzing, then, you know, the eval started going up and up. And so it, it turned out to be just a very, very strong sack. And I was just like kicking myself like, wow, <laughs> why, why didn't I do this? Because um, during the game, it was such a struggle for me. And I, I, I ended up not doing it. Um, and then a couple months later, I had the uh, exact same situation against the same player. It was like really sharp. All of a sudden, I noticed an interesting exchange sack. And uh, and I remember the previous game, of course. This is the same player. And I was like, yeah, last time I didn't do it. I think it was even on the, it was like the same move. It was like Rook takes D6 in both <laughs> games. Um, and uh, of course, I did it. It was completely winning. And I think that was even the first time I even beat that player. Like he was a very difficult opponent for me. Um, so yeah, there are moments where it just works out beautifully like the the previous uh, analysis of your games just helps you directly in the moment you know but i think it also just helps in in a general sense the more you do it the more experience you get and, and the better decisions you can make in in the long run yeah yeah great points absolutely uh kosha you you've come to the right podcast to speak to the value of classical chess because <laughs> <laughs> i talk it up as much as i can and um maybe i'm biased but i have a lot of guests who also do that as well so i hope anyone who is um uh unsure of you know the full value of it maybe is a at least a little more convinced that that it's going to really help them if they do your training program whether they do or not but especially of course if they do your training program as well and everything you described about it sounds really, really great. And uh, yeah, I just think it's something that needs to be out there for all the chess improvers to take advantage of. And I'm excited that the Chess Dojo put that out. I'm sure everyone's going to be really happy with it. So thank you for talking about that. Yeah, I, I appreciate it. Uh, I, I feel like I didn't even do that great a job of, of selling it. I should mention like we have some like opening repertoires that are like included with the program that um, Jesse has been working on. And I'm going to be working on... Um, uh, like a D4 repertoire and a King's Indian repertoire as well. Openings are are not our our main thing, and we're definitely in the camp of um, people are doing too much openings these days. Mm -hmm. um, but we understand that people need to know what to play, so we at least we can <laughs> provide that for them. <laughs> right. Well, I'm sure there's just so much to the program that it's hard to list everything, uh, you know, in like 10 minutes. So no worries there. But I, I think what you already talked about is enough to, at a bare minimum, pique people's interest, and they'll go to your sites and 
get the final details and hopefully sign up for it. Just wanted to say thank you so much, uh, Kostya, for being on the show today. Um, it's a really pleasure talking to you. Uh, I've been a fan of of your work, like I said, for for a while now. So it's an honor to talk to you. It's an honor to have you on the show. Next time Chess Dojo has a big project, <laughs> let me know. I'd love to have you back on to talk about it. And uh, just want to say thank you. Absolutely, Daniel. Yeah, thank you as well. Uh, I really enjoyed our talk. I, I hope it's going to be useful to uh, a lot of people. And uh, yeah, I love what you're doing with the podcast. I love that we have this like community online uh, that is quite quite supportive of each other, to be honest. And I mean, I think that's, I mean, yeah, it's definitely, uh, you know, a big part of Dojo's philosophy, but I, I just think it's just great in general that um, there are people uh, like you out there that are kind of building everyone up. Yeah, thank you. I really appreciate the kind words. Um, yeah, I mean, this podcast is a big supporter. I'll just say, like, make it official, big supporter of the Chess Dojo and everything you do. So um, happy to uh, share and promote whatever it is that you're working on, because I know it's going to be great. Yeah, again, just thank you. It was a great chat. Uh, I have no doubt this episode will be a hit <laughs> and uh, a lot of value for people. So thank you again. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of my business, Adult Chess Academy. And that has a website with the same name if you want to look for it. You can also find me being way too active on Twitter by searching my username, Lona underscore chess. See you next week.